This is a LifeGate Church podcast. Tune in to hear from our team as we encourage you to discover the freedom and purpose that Jesus offers. If you want to find out more about who we are, visit lifegate.org.au. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Con, and I hope you're enjoying church online. It definitely comes with a few perks. I enjoy having a, a cup of coffee and being in my PJs while I worship God. Today we have the privilege of it being Good Friday, and I get to share with you this message of the gospel, which we call Good Friday, which is the death of Jesus. It's interesting to say Good Friday, which is the death of Jesus, is good. How many of you would say after the death of a loved one that it would be good? It would be more like something, it was a painful day or sorrowful day. But as Christians, the death of of Jesus means that he died for us in our place for our sins, and that we get to have a relationship with him. But I've titled today's message, God Dies, and there's three major questions that I want to ask around the Good Friday message. And the first one is, how did God die? The second one is, why did God die? And the third one is, what does it mean for us? Now, I just want to say at this point that I'm going to share in detail around scourging and crucifixion. If you have young ones in the room and you don't want them to be hearing about scourging and crucifixion, this will be in my first point. So maybe they can start the kids program or they can be somewhere else, but it would be great to have them in my second and third point. Let's jump right on in. So how did God die? Now, I believe it's important for us to look at the details uh, of, of the night just before Jesus was to be crucified. Because I believe that we can say to people as Christians, or if you don't believe in God, that you've heard from others, say that God died for you, that Jesus died for you. And it's kind of like something that really doesn't penetrate our hearts. It's just something we hear and it doesn't really capture us in the way that it should. But when we see what Jesus went through, I'm hoping that you would really understand and know how much God absolutely loved you from the pain and suffering that he went through. Now, looking at the life of Jesus, he was Nothing didn't look anything special. He didn't look anything uh, different. Um, He was uh, a baby that was born. He grew up with a family. He worked a carpenter's job um, and he looked absolutely normal if you were to look at him. But if we fast track 30 years, um, he gets baptized. The Holy Spirit descends on him and then he goes into ministry. He starts healing people of their sight, their afflictions. He starts raising people from the dead. He feeds up to 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch, and he even walks on water without a jet ski. But then comes the night where Jesus is to be taken, and then the next day that he is to die. And so Jesus knows when this is going to happen. So Jesus goes to pray. This is the night before Jesus is about to be captured and sent to death. Jesus goes to the Father because he knows what is to happen, and he starts to pray. What Scripture tells us is that he started, uh, his sweat rather, started to turn to drops of blood. Now, we understand this to be a medical condition that when you're under so much stress and pressure and anxiety, that this is a very rare case. And this is probably what Jesus would have been feeling. From there, after having a sleepless night, um, uh, uh, one of his disciples called Judas Iscariot comes to betray him with a kiss. This is to tell the soldiers behind him that this is the one that you are to capture. And so the soldiers come and take a hold of him. They then take him under the the coverage of darkness to be falsely trialed. They have false witnesses that give false testimony about Jesus and they conclude at the end of it that they want to murder him. Then they take Jesus from there and they they put a crown crown of thorns on his head. They blindfold him and they curse him and then they bash him. 
From here on, we see that he goes to be scourged. Now, scourging was an absolutely horrendous uh, thing that happened. Most people that would have been scourged probably would have actually died from, from the beatings that actually happened. I want to turn your attention here to the screen. This was the uh, choice of tool that was used when scourging actually happened. They would chain the prisoner to either a, a timber log or a, or, or a big rock uh, where they had their hands out in front and that'll expose the back, the buttocks and the actual hamstrings. And this is called a cat of nine tails. It was made out of leather and you can see that there are nine straps if we count them up. And at the end of these straps, there would be metal balls as well as um, hooks that were made out of either uh, steel or bone. And what the actual soldier would do when they would whip the prisoner, they would, they would whip them several times. But as they, as they pulled back, the, the hooks would sink into the, the flesh of the prisoner. And then when they would actually pull back the, the whip, it would, it would tear off some flesh from the body. And the, um, the, the metal balls that were on the end of it were used to tenderize the flesh to allow the hooks to sink in. This happened repeatedly to Jesus. After this, Jesus was forced to carry his cross. You know, Jesus was a healthy man. He was a fit man. He was a carpenter by trade. And after Jesus had a sleepless night, after he's been falsely trialed, he's been beaten, he's been scourged, and on his blood beaten back, Jesus is forced to carry his cross. But this thing would have weighed upwards of 100 pounds, around 45 kilos. And so under the weight, he actually collapsed where the cross falls on top of him and crushes him. From here, we see that Jesus is taken to be crucified. Crucifixion was something that was invented by the Persians, but it was perfected by the Romans to inflict the most amount of pain and the most amount of suffering to keep the person alive for the longest amount of time. A word was even created to describe how painful this suffering was called excruciating, which literally means from the cross. We know that when they hung the prisoners on the cross, they were either tied rope around their hands or they would have nailed them to the cross. And we know that Jesus had nails driven through the most sensitive nerve endings of his hands and his feet because in a couple of days when Jesus rise from death, one of his disciples don't believe that he actually came back to life. But Jesus shows up and says, Timothy, have a look at my hands and see the holes in the scars that are still there. So Jesus was nailed to the cross. They then pick up the cross and they make it fall into a hole that was dug a little bit earlier where his body would have shook and shaken violently at that moment. At this stage, Jesus has been hanging on the cross for a number of hours and the crowds would have been still continue to mock him and curse him. This is when Jesus says that he thirsts and to, and to shut him up, they take a, a sponge, they shove that sponge on a stick, they dump it in wine vinegar and they shove it into his mouth. Now, we're not talking about a sponge here. That It's something that uh, you would use to wash your car and it was wrapped in a perfect plastic. I want to take your attention here to what is a olden day public toilet. This is actually a toilet that there, there is still that is still there in Ephesus, but this would have been the public toilets in the time of Jesus. And this wasn't a public toilet uh, reserved for the poor. It was actually reserved for the elite. The elite didn't care what people thought. The elite didn't care what others would say or do, but it actually showed their status. It showed uh, their eliteness and they'd actually be privileged to be sitting alongside others. I know it may sound weird because we have stalls and we do it in private, but they didn't mind and they'd done it in public to show that they were the elite. They were the ones that had power. 
And um, they would do their business up in these holes where you could see they would be sitting down. And now you can see along here there is a channel. And that, that channel actually had running water so that when they would finish, they would use that water to clean themselves. Now, if there wasn't water there, there would be a stick, there would be a sponge, and there would be a bucket filled with wine vinegar. And so this wasn't something where they had lots of sponges. This was a, something that was a reusable sponge for everyone to use. The wine vinegar was somewhat of a disinfectant. So they would take that sponge, they would dump it in the wine vinegar, and then they would clean themselves with it. I believe this is something of what Jesus had shoved in his mouth which is like modern day used up toilet paper. It would have been disgusting. Now we understand crucifixion kills by asphyxiation. As the prisoner would hang on the cross with their hands and feet nailed, they would slump down from the pain and they would, they would start to stretch out from the weight of their body and their diaphragm would be unable to breathe. And so they'd have to push themselves back up. They would take a breath. And then as they would slump again, they would exhale. But there's no way that you can inhale in this position. So there'd be this constant up and down, breath and exhale. And we know that this would have been happening for around about six hours for Jesus. And then we hear that Jesus committed his spirit to the Father and breathed his last breath. I want to read something from a book called Doctrine. And uh, it's been written by two authors called Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashears. And this is also what they think of a way that Jesus could have possibly died while he was on the cross. That's something a little different to asphyxiation. It reads, Doctors have thought that Jesus likely had a chest contusion and possibly a bruised heart from falling with the cross on top of him, which caused an aneurysm. Subsequently, Jesus' heart would have been unable to pump enough blood and his lungs would have been filled with carbon monoxide. Likely sensing he's Likely sensing he was having a heart attack, Jesus used his final moments to declare his victory over sin. Jesus said in a voice that was loud and triumphant, it is finished, to say that Jesus has conquered Satan, sin, hell, death, and the wrath of God. Jesus then said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Furthermore, to ensure Jesus was dead, a professional executor ran a spear through his side, which punctured his heart sack and water and blood flowed from his side. This is further evidence that Jesus died of a heart attack. The sack around his heart filled with water until the pressure caused Jesus' heart to stop beating. Thus, Jesus possibly died with both a literal and a metaphorically broken heart. When I first heard how Jesus died in this traumatic way, it absolutely shocked me to my core. It made me realize who was I that God would love me so much to go through this. And I hope that after hearing all that Jesus had gone through, it wasn't just this quick, sudden moment of death and God died for you, but it was a drawn out, very painful, excruciating uh, series of events that played out over, out over a very long period of time where Jesus was punished, Jesus was scourged, and Jesus was crucified for you and I. I hope upon knowing this that it captures you as well and we can come towards Jesus, loving him more and honoring him so much more for what he did for us. That's how Jesus died, or rather that's what, how God died. The second point is, why did Jesus, who is God, die? Now, the story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is unlike any other religious belief. Every other religion tells you that you need to go first, that you need to do stuff for God, and then God kind of meets you halfway and then blesses you or loves you or accepts you. 
The Christian message is totally different. It's not about what you do for God, but it's about what God has done for you through Jesus Christ, taking the punishment for your sins upon himself. Now, I want to explain this uh, reality of the gospel through Genesis chapter 15. This is a very famous passage in Scripture. It's around where Abraham um, is to be blessed by God. It's where God makes a covenant with Abraham to give him vast amounts of land. And so God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you all of this land. And Abraham says to him, how am I to know that you're going to give me this? I have no child. I have no heir. And then God says to him, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you an heir. And God says, come out with me. Have a look up to the heavens. And I could imagine this night just being one of those places where you're out camping and there's no light around and the, and, and the stars are just filled. The sky is filled with stars everywhere. And God says, Count how many there are, if you can. This is how many descendants you shall have. And then, and then the great thing is from there is that Abraham believes God and God counts it to him as righteousness. In that moment, God comes into a relationship with Abraham because he has faith in God, he trusts God, and God counts it to him as righteousness and he comes into a right relationship with God. But something really interesting happens from that moment. Abraham, even though trusting God, he says to him, God, how am I to know that I am to possess this? He questions God on what he is to do. And God says, let me show you. I'm wondering if you've ever been in that place where God has spoken to you and promised you something and you don't really know. All I want to say is Abraham asked, you can ask too. And I believe God will say, let me show you. And this is where we pick up the passage in Genesis 15. It reads this. So it's Genesis 15 verses 7 through 11, 17 and 18b. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur, of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess? How am I to know that I'm to possess it? That's Abraham's question to God. He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, he brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. He did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This is uh, verses 17 and 18b. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now, this is God manifesting himself as a smoking firepot and a flaming torch. In the Old Testament, God manifests himself in many different ways. And one of those ways was a, a cloud, a huge pillar of cloud to guide the Israelites during the day and fire by night. In this instant, God comes down and he becomes a, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch and he passes between the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now you're probably thinking, mm, this is a little weird. What a way to make a covenant. But it was nothing unusual for Abraham. We know this because God says, go and get these animals, but he doesn't tell Abraham what to do with them. Abraham brings them back he cuts them in half and he separates each half of the animal on each side, creating like a runway to walk past. Now, this is the way they did a covenant in the old days. And what would happen is, is that a king and maybe a lesser king or a king and a servant would agree on what they would do for each other. So one would say, I'm going to do this and this is my promise to you. And the other say, this is what I'm going to do and this is my promise to you. And then they would walk between the animals. And what they were saying is, if I don't keep my end of the promise, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, do to me what has been done to these animals. Cut me in half. 
That's the way a covenant was done then. And we see something amazing what God does. We read that God comes, he manifests himself, and he walks between the two pieces. This is absolutely amazing. He is saying, Abraham, I will bless you. As he said, I'm going to give you a descendant, I'm going to give you a son, and I'm going to give you lots of money. I'm going to bless you, but if I don't, do to me what has been done to these animals. And God is saying here that the impossible can become possible. Let my immortality suffer mortality. May my power suffer powerlessness. May I be cut off. This is God speaking. May I be destroyed. May my body be ripped to pieces. Now, if you're Abraham, you're, you're probably thinking, this is pretty amazing that God would declare this. But of course, Abraham's going to trust God because God doesn't break his promises. As we saw before, God, Abraham trusted God and, and, and he was faithful. But if you're Abraham, you're probably thinking, you're probably asking yourself this question. How do I know that I'm going to be faithful? How do I know that I'm going to be faithful to God and be his people? Surely, God, if I walk between these animals, I'm going to stuff up. I'm going to get it, going to get it wrong. And how long is it going to be before you, put, you don't put up with me anymore and say, that's it, I've had enough. And what we see is absolutely extraordinary between Abraham and God. God doesn't ask Abraham to walk between the animals. Only God walks between the animals. Do you know what God is saying here? He's saying that not only will I be torn to pieces if I don't keep my end of the covenant, but he's saying, Abraham, I am going to bless you even if you don't keep your end of the covenant, but I will still take the punishment for you. Abraham, I'm going to go through for the both of us. And friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not a partnership. It's not about what you do for God and then what God does for you. It's about what God has done for you. Even though we are unfaithful, even though that we break our covenant with God, God is faithful and he still chooses to bless us. And God kept his end of the covenant because thousands of years later, what Abraham didn't understand, but what we now realize is that God sent his son Jesus into the world. God became flesh. The immortality suffered mortality. That God's power suffered powerlessness. And that's why we read in Isaiah 53, verses 5 through to 8, but he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, and that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. And friends, that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Jesus was God, and he became incarnate. He became a man. And Jesus experienced scourging. Jesus had his flesh ripped from his body. And Jesus had his hands and feet pierced and Jesus suffered and died while he was crucified on the cross. So just like Abraham didn't deserve it and just like we don't deserve it, but God is faithful. And when we put our trust in Jesus, he takes away our punishment for our sins. He takes away our punishment rather and our sins because he has put them on Jesus. That's what God has. That is why God died for us. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, there's three points that I want to answer around what it means for God to die for us. The first one is you are forgiven. 
The second one is you are cleansed. And the third one is you are made new. Let's look at the first one. You are forgiven. Sin separates us from God. And that when we trust in Jesus, he forgives us of all our sin, past, present, and future. Not only that, the perfection of God is given to us. We, Jesus Christ was righteous. He gives us his righteousness. And therefore, we are justified in God's sight. This is what we call the great exchange and is super exciting. I want to explain it to you this way. Righteousness means perfect conduct before God and justified means just as if we have never sinned. And so when you think about us, humanity, you and I, we've got it wrong. We've stuffed up. We're sinners. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is perfect. He is righteous, perfect conduct before God all the time. And also Jesus is just But then when we read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 21, it says, For our sake he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is the exciting news of the gospel where the great exchange happens. Humanity therefore takes on Jesus' righteousness. It's as if we have had the right conduct with God and therefore we are justified. There is this switch that happens where we get Jesus' righteousness and therefore we are justified before God's sight. And then Jesus takes our sin. This is important because Jesus never sinned, as we read here, that he had no sin, but that he took our sin. And that when we trust in Jesus, we are forgiven of our sinful nature and that we come back into a right relationship with God because God has taken those sins from us. Second point, you are cleansed. It's one thing to be forgiven of your sins, but it's another when there have been sins that have been committed against you. I believe there might be some people that are watching this message and thinking there have been some horrible things that have been done to you. And it's maybe they've left a stain on your heart. Maybe it's left a a stain on your soul. It's kind of rendered you somewhat maybe dirty. And you try to do all that you can to get rid of it. You try great conduct. You try changing your character. You try giving lots. You try being kind and compassionate, but you still feel the weight of what's been done to you. The good news is that when you trust in Jesus, he not only forgives you of your sins, but he cleanses you. He takes away the guilt. He takes away the shame. And he also cleanses the stain. And when God forgives you and he cleanses you, I want to move on to my next point. He makes you New. This is my third point. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Friends, I want to explain this idea of being a new creation from what I have on the screen here of a home renovation versus a knockdown rebuild. When you look at a home renovation, you'll see the floor um, and you might have dirty carpets, so you might want to rip up those carpets and polish the floorboards. You might look at the paint in your house and say, it's kind of got a lot of marks on it. The kids have trashed it. Hey, let's repaint the place. You might even look at your kitchen and think it might need some new doors or knock it all out and then replace the kitchen, possibly the bathroom tiles, whatever it is. You can actually renovate your whole house on the inside. It can look completely different. But the thing is, is that the blueprint is still the same. Even though the inside has changed, the blueprint of the house is still the same. Now, with a knockdown rebuild, it's a completely new house. A bulldozer comes in, it takes it all away, and a new house is built. New foundations, new blueprints, new everything. And this is what God does for you when you believe in Christ. He doesn't just make you better. 
He makes you new. He doesn't just change a little bit of your character. He doesn't just make you a little bit moral. He doesn't just make you a little bit better. He actually, the old is gone and the new is come and you get a new life in Christ. So when you believe in Jesus, you are forgiven, you are cleansed and you receive a total new life. This is why the Bible says that our bodies are like a temple and that we carry the Holy Spirit in us because we are made pure. We are righteous and we are justified in God's sight. So friends, that is the gospel. The gospel is not about what you do for God, but what God has done for you. And when you receive Jesus Christ and the punishment of your sins that he took upon himself, you're forgiven, you are cleansed, and you are made new. I hope this message has been helpful. And don't forget, Jesus didn't stay dead, that in three days time, we will see that he rose from dead. That's why the Apostle Paul says that, If he did not rise from dead, our faith is futile and this is all a waste of time. I hope you can tune in for that. We will see you then. Thanks for joining us on the LifeGate Church Podcast. Our church is a place to discover the freedom and purpose that Jesus offers. 